Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're going to talk again about the Kingdom of God. And we were in a series about the structure, structure of the government, structure of the church, because the church is defined as one form of government. It's a different kind of government, so we don't usually think of the church as a government, because when we think of the word government today, anyway, we think of Men who exercise authority, you know, lawmakers, people who uh, control the whatever we call the government. You know, actually uh, the phrase when somebody says, I'm here from the government and I'm here to help is almost a will draw a, a laughter from the crowd. Because as Ronald Reagan says, the government isn't the solution, it's the problem. But uh, that's a certain kind of government, you know, the government... Uh, that's a government of power and control and uh, manipulation and often corruption and deception. Because whenever you create an office of power, you create the potential for the soul syndrome where power corrupts. You're giving somebody more power than a natural individual has on his own. You're creating a government of power. Christ came to create, or actually came to take a government away from the Pharisees who were sitting in the seat of Moses and the Sadducees, whoever. I mean, these were political parties, zealots, Sadducees, Pharisees. These were all really not just religious ideas, but they also controlled political parties. And and they weren't all homogeneous. I mean, the, there were clearly Pharisees who followed after Christ, but most of the Pharisees did not. Uh, there were clearly some uh, Essenes who followed after Christ, probably some Zealots, maybe some Sadducees. It, it, and this is the amazing thing, is that when Christ was preaching and, and performing different miracles and, and bringing in these new ideas so that people would repent and change their mind, uh, that's what repentance is, changing the way you think, that it was having an effect on people from all strata, Romans. Roman centurions was coming to Christ knowing that Christ had possibly the power to heal his servant. How did he know this? Was he a Christian already? Was he a follower of Christ already? Well, evidently he knew Christ. Pontius Pilate's wife knew of Christ, and there's some debate, but amongst uh, many of uh, the Christian groups that are still alive today, Around the world, there are people claiming to be Christians. The Pontius Pilate was a saint, and his wife as well. They started churches later on in life. He fell out of favor with Rome and went into exile, but supposedly did all kinds of wonderful things and repented uh, that he did not do more for Christ, but understood his role more. Uh, there's evidence that even Caiaphas became a Christian. Uh, there were others, uh, Nicodemus and... Uh, uh, these people all, be, uh, Joseph of Arimathea became followers of Christ and followers that were eventually persecuted. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea was kept in under house arrest for a long period of time. Uh, Simon 
the leper who was actually Simon the jar maker was, uh, according to the Talmud, was under house arrest for his involvement with a false messiah. Of course, that false messiah was the messiah, which was Christ. And I talked in a previous show about uh, Ben Shapiro, who was asking a question about Christianity and Judaism, the difference between the two. And he said he really wasn't an expert on Christianity, uh, admittedly so, and he was not sure he was correct, but he saw Christianity as a political movement, not just a religious movement, and that people did not follow after this small sect or group. Well, if the kingdom of God was a democracy, that would be significant because Christianity clearly was in a minority. It wasn't in a majority, but it didn't need to be in a majority in order to do what it did, which was follow after the true Messiah. And those that, according to the record that we see, and obviously according to uh, uh, history, that many of the Jews followed after Rome. We have no king but Caesar. Once they said that, they were out. They were not uh, Jews anymore. They they were by bloodline Jews, but they were abandoning the faith and making another king their king, uh, you know, which was Caesar. And historically, clearly that happened, but of course, historically also, there were those who then wanted to overthrow the Romans and drive the Romans out, and then they ended up fighting Titus and were destroyed, and there was this distribution or dysphora of uh, of uh, Jews all over the world because the temple was destroyed and, and there was huge bloodshed. But before that, large numbers of people marched out of Jerusalem, were given clean, clear passage by Titus, and those were also Jews, but those were Jews that followed the Messiah, Christ, the ones who were the faithful. And though they might have been in the minority, they're the ones who were the true Israelites, who were the true chosen people. Most of all who were Jews at first. And then Paul comes in, and Peter as well goes and uh, takes the gospel to other nations. Well, many of those other nations were probably also Israelites who had been dispersed all over the world after the Babylonian captivity, and even before. Before they chose the first king and rejected God, which was, you know, the first king was Saul, which was a rejection of God. Israelites were traveling all over the world. They were the sea kings. Uh, They were bringing this idea of Moses everywhere. And it was being corrupted everywhere. And But there were always a remnant around that was following after the ways of Christ. Now, the big question, are you one of those remnant today? Because today, Christianity is all over the board, all over the place. Has all kinds of different ideas and beliefs. And many of those beliefs are not true. They're false teachings. And so that's what we're going to look at. And we're going to look at it again in part of our Structure of the Government series. But we're going to take a little bit of a sidetrack and then we'll come back to where we were with that structure uh, of the government. But 
this is this is some people will call this a rabbit trail, but like I say, rabbits, if you stir up a rabbit on the desert, it will run out in a circle. And it will start circling around because a rabbit will get lost. It's very short. It can get lost in the brush. But it goes in this circle of its terrain and its territory. And it comes back to where it is. So if your dog is chasing a rabbit and you want to shoot that rabbit, I don't know why you would. They're all jackrabbits and they're usually full of fleas and not much meat on them. But if you're starving, just stay where you are because that rabbit's coming back to where you scared it up. And that's when you'll get your shot off at them. But... The reason that uh, I say rabbit trails are good is because of the fact they give you a lay of the land, a territory around a particular statement. And this is a major problem with eschatologies and exegesis of the Bible is that, and of Scripture, is that they take phrases, verses out of the context, not only of the Bible, but out of the context of history, out of the context of when they were said, by whom they were said, where they were said, why they were said, and they pick and choose what they think these things mean, these verses mean, based on this restricted view of what was actually taking place and being said at that time. And so that's why I always try to give you this broader scope so that you can look at the context of the Bible within the context of when the Bible was written, when these words were said, to whom they were said. If you don't know these things, you could easily fall prey to misinterpretation. Now, seeking the kingdom of God is not an intellectual adventure. It is not a matter of eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It is about eating of the tree of life. And this this actually came up yesterday in a conversation. How what what's happened in the world, and I'm just going to give you a brief rundown, is that people have fallen. We're in a fallen state, a fallen state of consciousness. We have our consciousness is no longer connected to the Christ consciousness, and we'll use that term not to become a Rosicrucian or something. But this consciousness of Christ, this knowing of the Lord, we've fallen from that because we have gone away that is not righteous. So how how do you get back to that? People say, well, you believe in Jesus. Well, you have to believe in the real Jesus because there's a lot of fake Jesuses out there. Just in uh, just in Josephus alone, I think we've come across six different Jesuses <laughs> that are referenced in history. And the reality is that the image of Jesus created by modern religion is worshipped by many, but that's not the same as worshipping Jesus. It's worshipping the image of Jesus created in your mind by other people. And so you don't want to do that. You want to know the real Jesus. And how do you know if you know the real Jesus? By, by what you do and by what you don't do. If you're doing contrary to what the real Jesus said to do, then you probably don't believe in him. Because if you love him, the real Jesus, you will, by nature, keep the commandments. And we were talking in reference to vaccination. Somebody was talking about vaccination. There's a bill in Oregon that uh, wants to force vaccinations. And somebody on 
one of the committees, uh, one of the local health committees was talking about that. And he was the only one advocating on the whole committee. I don't remember how many people were on the committee, but he was the only one advocating that we should not take away the right of the people to choose whether or not they want to be vaccinated. Of course, everybody says, well, if you don't get vaccinated, then we're at risk. Well, that's ridiculous. That is absolutely an absurd argument, and you can find all kinds of of articles that try to verify that that's true. And the reality is, is all those people who go out and get vaccinated, they're the ones that are putting all the unvaccinated at risk, far more at risk than those who uh, are put at risk by those who don't get vaccinated. And just just math alone would tell you this. Understanding the process, you would understand this. But they can't see that. They, they're not interested in facts and logic and, and actual information because it's an emotional issue. They're thinking about this issue at a particular level of consciousness. Now, they're not going to see that. They're not going to accept that. But they are, they are literally uh, blind guides. They cannot see. They don't have eyes to see the problem. So in the relationship to Scripture, now we go over into the area of Scripture and you're reading Scripture and you don't really understand the, 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 the phrases and the, and the statements being made. You think you do, but you've taken them out of, or somebody else has taken them out of the context of history. They've taken them out of the context of language. They have questionable translations. Even the King James, if you translate one word 15 different ways, you're affecting what people are reading. And the guys who did that were working for the government. <laughs> so, you know, do the calculations. Now, I'm not, I use the King James, uh, mostly because of the fact that it has, it's consistent and it has concordances that will help you find out what word did they actually use there. Because if they take, four, five, six different Greek words and translate them into the same English word, you're losing something that way as well. And then if you take it out of the context of history, I mean, like Corbin, everybody should know what Corbin is. It's really obvious. And we have articles up. But it is. But the people who read this that go to uh, theology colleges or, uh, and study the what they have to say, they, they go like, I, I didn't know that. That can't be true. That's not what they taught me in school. Well, it's true. Whether they taught it to you in school, that should actually make you start to question your diploma. But people don't want to question their diploma because their identity is wrapped up in their diploma that has given them a sense of knowledge. Like the, the scarecrow who in Wizard of Oz what he didn't have, he was really smart, but what he didn't have was a diploma. He's given a diploma and suddenly he thinks he's smart. <laughs> so that's, but the fact is, is that lots of people have diplomas that have really bad ideas and do really bad things. So that doesn't make you smart, but yet your identity is wrapped up in that. So, anyway, we're going to challenge a lot of your delusions. And there's no way that I can do these shows without challenging your delusions. But that's, I guess that's my job. And I'm sticking to it. So, uh, we're going to, we're going to be looking at a lot of different things. And I've, 
have been putting this page together for quite some time. And uh, it started on a Facebook post where somebody was advocating that we, that anybody, that there was a shooting in a synagogue, I guess it was, where somebody came in and was trying to kill people. And somebody, a security, off-duty security guard, or, or I guess he actually was an INS employee, uh, employee or ICE employee. And he happened to have a gun, a concealed weapons permit, and uh, he was able to shoot at the uh, the perpetrator of murder and mayhem, and uh, and caused him to flee. And I can give you lots of examples where somebody, you know, came into a mall here in Oregon, and somebody pulled out a pistol because he had a used to be a security guard at that mall, and he still had his weapon with him, and he had a concealed weapons permit, and he pulled it out. And uh, just pointed it at the guy who had a semi-automatic AR-15, I think. And the guy fled down a hallway and shot himself. And, you know, we've had lots of shows talking about, you know, what, why is that? Why do these people who go out and are killing everybody, but when confronted with somebody with a gun, they go and kill themselves? Just confronted with them. They're not actually shot at. They're not shot uh, they go and they kill themselves when they are not going to be able to continue to kill other people. And this is actually a spiritual consciousness that has gotten into them. You call it possession, whatever. They have fallen to a particular state of thinking where destruction is their desire. And if they can't destroy anymore, they destroy themselves like Adolf Hitler in a bunker. And, of course, there's plenty of theories that he didn't actually kill himself, that he killed a doubleganger, <laughs> and that he had already uh, forged his uh, dental records so that he, he could get away scot-free. And that may very well be the case. I personally go back to Nero and believe that Nero did not die, but his doubleganger actor representative died in his place, and he actually escaped. And uh, I, I kind of favor that conspiracy theory. <laughs> but, but anyway, these are all little points of history, and you don't really know. But what do you know? What can you know? And this has to do with this layers of uh, the conscious collective, the collective consciousness. If you are in this lower state of destruction, you will follow a particular pattern. You will ruin other people's lives and then you will ruin your own. Uh, you, this can get to the point where you actually go in to some school or other gun-free zone and kill people and then kill yourself. That, that's a pattern of thinking and you fall prey to it and it's because you're at that particular strata or level of consciousness. At another level of consciousness, you think another way. You may still be self-destructive, but in a different way. At another level, you might actually be closer to the kingdom. And ultimately, you get at the level of the kingdom, and you think like Christ. And you act like Christ. And you're compelled by your faith to do things the way Christ would do them. Not according to your imagination, but according to the level of consciousness that you've reached. And that's actually why you can't convince a blind guide 
of the truth. You can talk to him about the truth. You can show him evidence of the truth. He's not going to see it. Because he does not have eyes to see. Because he's not at that level of consciousness. He, he will not let that conscious awareness into his mind. Because basically he resists repentance. He will not repent. And so therefore he remains in these lower levels of consciousness. Which we call unconsciousness. And so anyway, that's a little bit of the metaphysics there. And I'm using this, uh, you know, maybe the, a metaphor of stratas of consciousness and levels of consciousness. And of course now, the question, and when I was talking to somebody about this the other day, they, they came up with the question, how do you move from the lower levels of consciousness up to the higher levels of consciousness? We just heard... In a commercial break just before this where somebody was talking about, or I guess it was in the news, the uh, that schizophrenics can be actually helped by a certain chemical that is found in broccoli, or at least broccoli sprouts, and uh, that they can help schizophrenics. But for years, they've said that it is not a chemical imbalance in the mind that causes schizophrenia. And I, I believe that it is not a chemical imbalance. Uh, that it's actually, uh, there's a spiritual imbalance that is causing this, usually caused by trauma. But what overcomes the trauma? Are we saved by broccoli? <laughs> I mean, are we saved by chemistry? No, we're not. It is true that eating healthier foods can help the mind function better. But the, to overcome trauma, it's not about broccoli. It's about being willing to see the truth and accept the truth. And there's lots of ways to come to that repentance. And one way is to have someone who cares about you as much as you he cares about himself. And that will help teach you how to care also because that's what trauma is, is that you're turning your back on the truth. And so you have to be willing to see the truth and this will help you Deal with those dark places in your heart where the trauma resides and keeps you from having a balanced mind. And so, but that doesn't necessarily bring you to a higher level of consciousness. It actually just allows your brain to function at this particular level. What brings your mind up to the mind of Christ? Well, Christ told you. Forgiveness and giving. Laying down your life and not hating or resenting or judging others. Judge not, lest ye be judged. So this is, by living that lifestyle, you come closer to the consciousness of Christ. But you can't live that lifestyle without Christ. So it's a catch-22. There is no trick to finding the kingdom of God and His righteousness. But that is the process of laying down your life and giving of your life and forgiving others. But anyway, we'll get into this when we come back to Keys of the Kingdom. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So anyway, I've been putting together this uh, whole uh, article on uh, on the two swords quote in uh, the Bible where Jesus says, if you don't have a sword, go out and sell your coat and uh, your cloak and buy one. Uh, 
and, you know, carry a purse with you. Because he had sent out not only the apostles, but also the 70. He sent them out without a purse and, and scrip and, and, uh, a sword and all these things. He sent them out without that to test their faith. And this is exactly what Moses was doing when he picked his 70. And uh, because he was told to pick 70 and introduce them to the Holy Spirit. And so this was the way in which Christ was going to introduce them to the Holy Spirit. And by the grace of God, the Holy Spirit went with them when they went out to preach the kingdom in small groups of two. And, uh, this is, and we'll, we'll talk more about those groups of two. This is very Judaic, this groups of two thing. The 70. You know, Jesus was picking a Sanhedrin. At that particular time, the Sanhedrin had been literally overturned, uh, because, uh, Manahan had left the Sanhedrin with, uh, uh, a bunch of people, uh, they actually say 80, which I think is peculiar because the Sanhedrin was only supposed to be 70, 71 at the most. So I'm not sure who the 80 were, but there were probably other supporters in government who were also going with them. But it, it ended the quorum. They, they didn't have enough to be the 70 anymore when these guys marched out. And this is, and it's documented in, and on this page we'll have footnotes that show you where we got this from. But Manahan had predicted, he was at the time of Herod, he had predicted that Herod would be king. He predicted before Herod was king that when Herod was king, the Messiah would come. And of course, Christ was born during this period. And it was so it was all during this period that he left. We know the Bible mentions uh, Simeon who uh, uh, knew of the coming of Christ and recognized uh, Jesus as an infant. We know that and, you know, this king was born, uh, wasn't in a humble little stable, you know, like we like to think and that they like us to think. <laughs> but he was born in a very successful, well-to-do family. And, uh, and the way they constructed their homes in those days was over the top of the stables. The animals were underneath and they were above. And this was for safety purposes as well as warmth. And uh, so now you're going to have a baby. There's limited room upstairs, so you have it in this in this enclosed area where animals would be, because it's warmest there and the most privacy. And uh, but it would have to be a fairly well-to-do person to allow him uh, that location to give birth. And uh, but anyway, uh, the reality is, is, you know, people will you know say, so what does that have to do with anything? Well. Your delusion is a product of lots and lots and lots of little misinformation. <laughs> and so, the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, and what is righteous and not righteous, which you're supposed to be seeking, is composed of lots and lots of little pieces that need to fit together to build the living temple of God. And if you don't have room in your heart for one of these pieces, something is missing. It's like you, you I built this whole house, but I didn't use any nails. Well, it's going to fall down at the first breeze. You have to build it on the rock. You can't build it on sand. So, which means that you have to build it on the character of the real Jesus. The name of the real Jesus. The character, the being of the real Jesus has to fit. If something doesn't fit, 
it's not the kingdom. <laughs> so, so you want to, so in the Bible tells you constantly to be checking all these different things. Most ministers do not, well, many of them don't know. They lack knowledge. And some of them lack the Spirit of Christ. They want to gather a little flock unto them. And I'll tell you a little story. Some people like my little sheep stories. Yesterday, uh, I let out the sheep early in the morning. And I, I let them into an area where they can eat for a while. And it's it's too early to put them out on the desert because, you know, there's a changing of the guard going on out there. And we did it once where we let them out at 6. And immediately a bobcat got into the lambs and injured a lamb really bad. And I told that story. But... uh so I, I let them into a closed area nearby where there is some feed, but uh, they can't get out on the whole desert. And, well, I I didn't close the gate tight. I didn't latch it. I came in really late at night, about 2 o'clock uh, in the morning, and uh, I thought I'd closed it. It looked like it was closed, but I didn't have it latched, and they got out. Well, Unfortunately, also, some of the lambs didn't go with them. So we had some lambs here and some sheep out there. And so I locked up the lambs when I realized what I had done and went running out there. I had been answering letters to people who want to know how does the church own property and other people who want to form a congregation but want to know how to have a bank account and and all these things in accordance with the gospel, the original gospel. And I can answer all these things, but I really like to answer all these things when people sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, which Christ commanded. No loaves and fishes until you do that. But yet people still want the loaves and fishes, but they don't want to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. And they, they see that the tens, hundreds, and thousands is a prudent way of going, a good idea of, of doing things. No, it was commanded by Christ that you sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, or you weren't going to get no loaves and fishes. So, why do people expect me to trade them all the secrets of the kingdom? Christ wouldn't do that. Christ told the people parables. He gave, and the apostles even asked him, why do you always talk in parables to the people? You know, he says, because it's given unto you to know, but it's not given unto them to know. Why is it not given unto them to know? Because they're not sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. <laughs> they're not networking. Oh, they care about their little congregation, but they don't care about other congregations. You see, it's not that you just gather in tens, but in ranks of 50 and ranks of a 100. Because that's evidence that you care about people you don't even know. We know you love those who love you. Christ talks about that. But he said the publicans do that. What you need to do is love those people you don't even know. Well, the way you do that is sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. So do that and you'll get some loaves and fishes. <laughs> so anyway. But anyway, back to uh, uh the sheep that were... Uh, Scattered now on the desert, some walking out. So I, I, I locked up the ones and I walked out across the desert because they were way off by the time I realized these lambs were separated out. And, uh, 
and I was crossing the desert, and under a greasewood bush, there were three lambs laying in the shade asleep. And, of course, I walked right up on them and woke them up. I thought, gosh, we've got lambs everywhere. <laughs> They're all over the place. And one of the lambs had a injured leg, and it was limping really bad. And... uh it, it hadn't been injured before. This happens sometimes out on the desert. Somebody gets injured. And uh, so I'm going to probably catch him today and bring him back and splint whatever it is that's broken in there. But two other lambs were staying with him. And this is this is surprisingly what they... Because lambs have this gregarious instinct to stay together. They're, they're social creatures like man. He's a social creature, and so he wants to gather. So they had gathered in this little group under the sage, uh, under the greasewood in the shade, and they were staying together, and they were going to get eaten by coyotes if they don't get with the. <laughs> they were going to be left behind. So anyway, I I chased them back up in the direction of the trailer, and where the other lambs were locked up. And I headed back and got the rest of the sheep. And then I came back, brought them all up. And eventually they crossed the path and they joined in. You saw, I saw the two running out and then the, the, the limper coming out. And then I got the others that were mixed into the pen. I released them and got them all together and then took them back out. Now it's really late in the morning and it is getting warmer. But the idea of their gregarious nature that they have to stick together was strong enough that those three lambs stayed together even though they were still dangerously vulnerable. No shepherd with them because I can't be with both groups. I had to get them back with the big group. And once they got back with the big group, they stayed together. They were together the rest of the day and they were together when I locked them up last night and the coyotes were howling again as they were coming into the field because the sun had already gone down. This is what people are doing in their little congregations. Their little congregation of three people, six people, ten people. They want their little congregation, but they hesitate to sit down in the hundreds. In their network of tens and hundreds. They're like those little sheep hiding under the bush. Thinking that we're safe over here under the shade of this little greasewood. We're comfortable. We have the fulfillment of our gregarious desires and instinct, because we are together. But you're not with the hundred. You're still out there lost. And you're not going to get no loaves and fishes. And you're not going to get the protection of Christ because you're not doing what Christ commanded. So get with the program and do what Christ commanded. Get the delusion of modern churchanity out of your mind and gather in a network that is bound only by love. Not just those who love you, but you're now loving those in the network that you don't even see. You don't, the shepherd sees them, Christ sees them, you don't see them, but you love them just the same. And love is a utility, so therefore you will contribute and that contribution will flow to them. But you contribute only to those that you immediately know. And now the responsibility of circulating the blood of your sacrifice to others is on their shoulders. It's just like your own body. 
your heart pumps, but your veins and your arteries take the blood to where it needs to be and back again. And that's that's the way your body works. That's the way the kingdom works. So understanding structure is understanding your body. Well, your body also has an immune system. We talked a little bit about vaccinations. You want the immunity and the protection of the whole body. You have to become a part of the whole body. And then that spiritual protection will circulate in the mystery of your own blood. The soul. Where does the soul sit, sit, sit in your body? Well, according to Moses, it sits in the blood. So where is the blood in the body of Christ? Isn't it in the sacrifice of Christ? Where is the sacrifice of Christ in you? That's in your contributions. Whether it's time or money or energy, you know, or whatever you have to sacrifice. You must lay down your life to pick up your life more abundant. And so you lay down your physical life, your physical contribution, so that not so that you'll become rich, you know, with the prosperity gospel, so that you will be you will be enriched by the Spirit of Christ. Because he will know your sacrifice. It, that's you don't need to broadcast it out to other people, but he will know if you're faking it. <laughs> and what happens is that he draws your consciousness up to his level. This is why the word Corban, meaning sacrifice, Corban of the Pharisees was making the word of God to none effect, but the Corban of Christ makes the word of God to effect. What is the Corban of Christ? The sacrifice of Christ. Is the sacrifice, is Christ in you? You know how you know Christ is in you? Because you are sacrificing like Christ sacrificed. You are not judging, but you are washing the feet of your brothers. You're not just loving those that are immediately around you, but loving those that are way out that you don't even know, that you haven't even met. This is this, this is the Spirit of Christ. Is that what's in your desire to congregate? Or are you like those three sheep hiding under a greasewood in the shade and comfort out there in the desert? Oh no, you don't want to be that. You want to, you want to seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness. So anyway, back to our discussion of what we're going to discuss, which is the two swords quote. And like I say, there are many false exegesis used by modern Christians. You know, people, this is another thing that came up this week again. Somebody was saying, well, Christians, uh, is actually somebody in the government of South Africa sending his post, wanted us to help them write a new constitution. That's not our job. We have a constitution. <laughs> We're in another government, the government of Christ. Now, we understand that most people are captured in the governments that they're in. And that the whole world is using force. To establish their governments. Uh, they don't, they're not necessarily using violence, but there is violent nature to it. But they, they collect their Corbin by forced contributions. That's not Christian. Christians don't force their neighbor Christians to contribute to their welfare, to take care of their parents, to educate their children. Christians don't force their neighbors to take care of them. 
That's what the world does. That's what the pagans do. We don't do that. But there's a lot of people out there who call themselves Christians, but are actually workers of iniquity. Now, I'm not judging them. I'm just pointing out. You cannot be forcing your neighbor to contribute to your welfare at the point of a gun, even though you don't hold the gun. You don't believe in guns, right? <laughs> I don't know if you do or not. But there are those that say, well, I, I don't believe that we should have, you know, weapons. We, we, Christ told us to put down our weapons. No, he didn't. He didn't tell you to put down your weapons. He didn't tell you to put away your weapons. He, uh, he did tell them, put it in the sheath, but not get rid of it. He did tell them to go out and buy, if they don't have a sword, a weapon, go out and get it. But we're going to explore that. What, what was he meaning? And, you know, I, I was typing in and explaining to somebody on Facebook, but they didn't want to get it. They had their own exegesis, exegesis uh, of this whole uh, idea of two swords. And they, so anyway, I, I'm talking about kingdom eschatology here, which is the study of the nature of the kingdom of God. And most people don't understand that, which you really want to understand because that's what you're supposed to be seeking, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So you need to understand how the kingdom of God works. Same with the, the fellow in South Africa who wants us to write a constitution for him. You need to understand how the kingdom of God works. He was saying that Christians came to South Africa and were doing this. and I'm saying, no, those weren't all Christians. And everything they do, just because somebody says they're a Christian and then they do something, you say, that's what Christians do? No. When anybody is doing something that Christians are not to do, or failing to do what Christians were told to do, that means they're not a Christian. It, that's just the way it is. I hope they will become Christians, but they have to repent and think like Christ. If they're not thinking or acting like Christ, if Christ wouldn't do that, then that is not a Christian thing to do. It's, it's that simple. But people want to believe that they're Christians. They've got their Christian diploma and they identify with being a Christian because they accepted Jesus into their heart as their personal Savior. At least that's what they say. But how do you know they've really done that? How do they know? How do you know you've really done that? Well, the, the, the way that the epistles tell you, the way that the Gospels tell you, are you doing what Christ said? If you're not doing what Christ said, then you're not a Christian. You're not. If a Christian is a follower of Christ, you got to be doing what Christ said to be a follower of Christ. If you're not doing what Christ said, then your claim to believe in Christ is a lie. That's simple. You should be able to grasp that. People don't want to grasp that because they don't want to believe that they don't believe. They want to believe that they do believe. <laughs> it's a catch twenty-two. And the same as the guy out there shooting people at the mall wants to believe that he is fulfilling his mission. Well, he may be fulfilling his mission, but his mission was not from God. It's from a lesser God, a false God, an evil God. So if you're doing evil instead of righteousness, then you haven't found the kingdom of God and his righteousness. 
So anyway, like I said, we're going to take a look at what the kingdom... The kingdom of God was a real government. We know that because Jesus said he was going to take the kingdom away from real people in real time. That's what he said. I'm going to take the king... It was, for one thing, he said the kingdom was for the living, which is, you know, Luke 20, 38, for he is not the God of the dead, but the living. For all live unto him. Even evil people will actually serve God in a roundabout sort of way. And when Titus was destroying Jerusalem, he was actually doing what Christ said would happen. He was fulfilling prophecy. <laughs> what, what the book of Revelation said was going to happen. And it may happen again. Because that's why you see so much repetition in the book of Revelation is because this is one of the to understand prophecy in the Bible, it, sometimes you see them repeat the same prophecy right in a row. That means it's going to happen more than once. And, you know, and of course we're told that. That if you do not learn from history, you will repeat it. But in Luke 9.60, we also say Jesus said unto them, Let the dead bury the dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. So, it, But he said he was going to take the kingdom away. You know, in Matthew twenty one forty three, Therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation that bringeth forth fruits thereof. And Paul talks about the fruits. I have the fruit. You know, he talks about fruit from the kingdom when he's moving from one nation to another through this network of hundreds and thousands. He's He's taking their sacrifice and providing aid for another group. This is what the church is supposed to be doing. This is the daily ministration. And so Jesus is telling the people, saying, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in the in Moses' seat. They're sitting in the actual government of God, as if they are the kingdom of God. But they're not doing what God said. They're not doing what Moses said. They're doing something different. We talk a great deal and explain a great deal how they had distorted the Torah to mean something that it did not mean. And so they were actually, you know, like stoning adulterers with rocks by hitting them in the head with rocks. Not what they were supposed to be doing at all. They were still piling up stones and burning up sheep. Not what they were supposed to be doing. Well known by the Essenes at that time that that was a fiction and a fraud and a misinterpretation of the Torah. They were reading the Torah and they weren't doing that. Why not? They were extremely devout and dedicated why weren't they piling up stones and burning up sheep? The only time they put a sheep on the fire where they were going to eat it. So why were they? Why weren't they killing sheep like the Pharisees? Because the Pharisees had it wrong, and Christ tells us that the Pharisees had it wrong. And He warns, "Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye pay tithe and mint and anise and cummins." And at that time, these were compelled. They had tax collectors out collecting. Counting the branches on your Cummins plant because they were going to get 10 of them. You know, or 10 out of every 100. Because that they were tax collectors. The tax man was at your window counting the Cummins plant. <laughs> but they were omit, omitting the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. Those are the weightier matters. So how are we going to attend to... The, the weightier matters if we follow Christ. How did he attend to the weightier matters of law, judgment, mercy, faith? 
how how did Christians attend to these things? Well, that's what we're going to talk a little bit about before we're done here. Because people who often focus on what they think about God imagine, because they think the definition of religion is what you think about God, which it is not, was not, should not be considered the definition of religion. Religion is what you do. Threskia in the Greek is what you do. But they failed to attend to those weightier matters. And they were condemned by Christ for doing, you know, failing. So you don't only get into trouble with Christ for what you do, but you can also get into trouble with Christ for what you do not do. Because Christ was saying, not those who say, Lord, Lord, I believe in Jesus and all this, but those who actually do. If you want to be his brother, and you got to be doing the will of the Father. And the will of the Father is not coveting your neighbor's goods. That's not the will of the Father. If you're coveting your neighbor's goods, you want benefits at the expense of your neighbor, then you're not a Christian. In that element, you're not a Christian. And you have need of repentance to get right with the Lord. So, many even fail to practice pure religion, unspotted by the world. We go into a great detail. And, and on this page, which we'll make available with these recordings eventually, there'll be live links to articles on pure religion and what it meant to be unspotted by the world. Because unspotted by... How did, how did your religion get spotted by the world? Do you get dirt on it? You know? Do leaves blow into your, you know, dirty, dead leaves blow into your religion? <laughs> How does the world spot your religion? Unspotted by the world means you don't use the welfare systems of men who exercise authority one over the other. You don't pray to the fathers of the earth and the men who call themselves benefactors who take from your neighbor. Christians don't do that. If you're doing that, you have need of repentance. And you have not found the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God doesn't have to do that. And certainly that's not righteous. But we'll be right back to Keys of the Kingdom. Don't go away. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So we're talking about this myriad of false prophets and false teachers that have given you a historically filtered view of the early church so that you don't know what the early church was actually doing. These these congregations of the people were that were meeting in homes, home churches. You know, I've I joined a number of home church groups on Facebook, and they don't seem to have a very good view, a very good understanding. They don't seem to be very conscious of what the early church was doing. They're they're big into the fact that they're they got their little social group, and they're they're trying to link them together somehow. Uh, some of them are trying. Many of them are just, they're, they're just in their little home group. They, and they get the feeling of security that comes from being in that little group, like those three lost lambs. That, you know, what I'm sure happened was the one with the hurt leg wanted to lay down because everybody was eating and they were slow and he didn't really need anything. So he laid down. And the other two stayed with him. Because they didn't want to leave him. Back when I told you where a lamb got attacked, you know, it was probably a 40-pound lamb, got attacked by a bobcat. And you know it was a bobcat by the the wounds. And uh, and we broke it up, and the bobcat ran off. Uh, but uh, 
the lamb was hurt really bad and they could not keep up with the herd. Two lambs about the same size stayed with that lamb for days. They would go out, they would eat. That lamb was really moving slow. It was, it would eat grass and stuff like that, but it was in a lot of pain and everything. But eventually it healed. And after about three, four, maybe five days, it was able to keep up with the flock. But until it was able to keep up with the flock, these other two would walk with it through the desert. And I, I thought that was amazing. They stayed with that. That's, that's the symposia of Christ. They stay together. But where are they going when they're out there? They're trying to get back to the hundreds, to the other sheep. They want to be in the herd. Now, these guys sitting under the little greasewood bush, they were content in the shade there. But when I came up, they thought, oh, my, my goodness, where's the rest of the sheep? They wanted to get, and they look around, but they couldn't see the rest of the sheep at that time. And so I kind of shoot them back to the, the pen where they stayed at night. And it was still, you know, that's probably eighth of a mile away at this point. And they found their way back there because when I brought the other sheep back up, which I had to go another half mile to catch up with them and bring them back up. When we were within probably a 100 yards, they heard the other sheep, and the, uh, the two of them came running out through the gate, just dashing down towards the other sheep. Because <laughs> there's the rest of the flock, and then the, the limper come a little bit later. He was in the shade again. He might have a little bit of a fever. And why she, why he's drawn towards the shade. And that's why we're going to probably collect them up. Uh, the, the dairy cows come fresh. So we'll just end up giving them some of that milk. And uh, we'll put them in a little local field here with a couple other sheep that we have back here. And then he'll he'll feel okay, hopefully. And we may have to splint his leg. But that's because there's a shepherd. But if they wander off too far, the shepherd ain't going to find them. <laughs> And the shepherd commanded that they get with the herd. Get with the whole body of sheep. And not just be content with their little group. So anyway, now I've given that message several times. You think it'll sink in with anybody? But anyway, so these false teachers give you this funny picture of Christianity that just ain't so. And they, you know, Christianity was persecuted because it was a private welfare system that was separate from the welfare system of the world because it was unspotted by that world. It wasn't unspotted by the planet. It was unspotted by the constitutional order and system of government that used force to provide for the needy of the the citizenry in a covetous practice of a Corbin sacrifice that was compelled by government and uh, therefore was able to provide free bread and even circuses for the people. None of that's Christian. Christianity provides a daily bread rightly divided from house to house by a network that is operating by faith, hope, and charity, not by force. Now, I didn't use the word violence here. I used the word force. And we're going to take a look at the word violence because... There's, you know, you only see this word violence a couple of times in the, in the New Testament. And, it, and both times is from two completely different Greek words. <laughs> so what, what the heck is that all about? Why two completely different Greek words translated into the word violence? So anyway, 
The institution of men's change over times. There is a vast difference between the early church and what we call the modern church. What we see posing as the church today. And Christ warned that he would be calling certain people workers of iniquity. Uh, even though they said they were Christians. So we need to understand what those differences are so that we can seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But like I say, because of this limited view and this lack of knowledge, uh, many people have been led to pseudo-doctrines that are not really the doctrines of Jesus. If Jesus didn't say it, that ain't so. What I see, though, a lot of times is people are quoting Jesus and and adding their own interpretations to it because they're taking those individual quotes out of the context. They just sometimes change a couple little words, but they take it out of the context of the whole doctrines of Jesus Christ, and they don't fit anymore. And so you have, like I say, it has to fit. So anyway, we're going to see if we can't fit it together a little bit. Uh, when Jesus made his particular directive that the disciples, if they didn't have one, they were to go and buy a sword. They were supposed to take their purse and all this stuff. Uh, what, uh, what, what was he really saying and to whom was he really saying it? Because, now like I said, he sent out the apostles in groups of two, but he also sent out the seventy in groups of two with the same instructions. And so now when he's saying that they're supposed to go out and buy the sword, I just saw the movie uh, Paul, I think they call it. I don't know if there's a longer name to it, but it's about Paul. It's a recent movie that came out. Somebody got it on Netflix just so I could see it to add it to uh, our program. And I got a whole envelope here full of notes. Uh, and it wasn't too bad a movie, but if you if that's your knowledge of Paul, after watching that movie, you're not going to understand the kingdom of God. Because those guys did not understand it. It wasn't wasn't horrendous. I mean, it wasn't. There were no rock creatures or anything like that. <laughs> like with, I haven't yet seen the Noah one yet, but uh, uh, I've I've threatened to watch it so I could do a show on that. But uh, the uh, they they just did not give you a clear image of what Paul was up to. One of the things I thought was horrible is that we got Luke coming in there with a little tiny bag of coins because he had taken... This was sent by... I don't remember he said it was Corinth or Galatia or wherever he came from. And it's not much, but we hope it helped. And that's not... I mean, that, that we're dealing with thousands and thousands of people sometimes in great need. That was another thing is that people weren't working hard enough. I can tell you this, in the kingdom of God, everybody works. No exceptions. You do what you can do. You're busy. You're not idly walking around. You know, everybody, uh, they would be busy. Aquila and Priscilla, uh, they made a reference to the fact none of these people walked with Jesus. Priscilla and Aquila did. They were part of the 70. They, they knew Jesus. I mean, there's countless records that make reference to that. And there's no reason to believe that they did not know and walk with Jesus. They were tent makers by profession. Paul was a tent maker by profession. I can tell you, if you came on this little hideout of Christians, they'd all be making tents. (laughs) Because they have to, 
If you don't work, you don't eat. I'm not sending you any contributions by Luke or anybody else if you guys aren't busy. You need to be busy. You need to be industrious. It is the nature of God to be industrious. It was the nature of Christ to be industrious. He was busy. You don't sit around idly. So I didn't like that in the in the movie. So anyway, in Luke twenty two thirty five, he says, And he said unto them, When I sent you without purse and scrip and shoes and lack ye anything, and they said nothing. So they didn't lack. So why did he send them out? Well, he was introducing, he did send them out with the Holy Spirit and they came back with all these stories because of the fact that the power of the Holy Spirit went with them. Just like it was in the days of Moses. They had this power of the Holy Spirit. And what is that? That's a gift. But you're operating at this other level of consciousness. And they were learning how that worked. And if the Aquila and Priscilla were a part of the Sanhedrin, they knew how, they were learning how this worked. They were introduced. Were they a part of the 120 that came into one accord in the upper room? We don't understand most Christians have no idea of what that what was really going on. You have to remember, Jesus had taken the government away from the Pharisees. He had marched in Jerusalem. Everybody had hailed him as the highest son of David. Hosanna, son of David. That means you're the king. We accept you as the king. We're laying out palm branches, which we only do for the king. You're appearing in the royal treasury, instructing the ministers of the royal treasury. Why? Because you're the king. You're not this itinerant preacher out there with dusty feet. You're actually the king, hailed as the king, sitting there on the left side, watching how they're bringing in funds and distributing funds. He makes orders that they weren't to carry vessels in the temple anymore. The many uh, Hebrew scholars say that the word vessel there actually means weapons. Swords. Why would they have swords and weapons in there? Because they were forcing the taxation of the people. They were not supported by free will offerings. Israel as a nation had no king. Had no forced offerings. There was no taxes in the kingdom. There was tithes. But you tithe to the minister of your choice according to his service. That's what it says. According to his service. That's a different kind of government than what you would find almost everywhere else in the Roman Empire at the time. There were still some governments around that operated in that way. The Essenes were operating in that way. And 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 so... Here comes Christ and he says, we're going to go back to that. We're going to abide by the five restrictions. And I I have a link here in this that you can go find it. Five restrictions mentioned in the Bible. Deuteronomy 17 for king. If you have a king, he cannot do these five things. He's not to do these five things. Christ was going to keep those things. That means no professional army. You can't accumulate soldiers. You can't accumulate horses. You can't accumulate gold and silver. Because even though you're the king, you're not supposed to be doing that. Christ is now going to be keeping those rules. That's why the soldiers didn't like, the professional soldiers didn't like Jesus Christ. They mocked him. 
because in his kingdom there were no professional soldiers. They don't they don't need professional soldiers because they they can't make treaties. They they aren't going to go to war uh, for treaties. That doesn't mean that they will not be armed. You remember, there's no kings in Israel before the king. But when people attacked them, they could muster an army overnight. Same with the Teutons. Why? Because they were sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. But Christ was warning them, we're going to defeat Rome. We're going to defeat all these governments like Rome. Not with an army, but with another method, with the power of the Holy Spirit. But that doesn't mean you don't be armed. Because you're going to be counted amongst the transgressors. And we'll take a look at that word transgressor and find out why. You know, somebody was trying to say that that could be a thief or robber or murderer or anybody. No. No, it couldn't. Not if not when they're using that particular word. Why do I say that? Well, I'll show you. And it's in this article. We're not going to be able to get through all this. It took me quite a while to put this all together. Uh, with the interruptions, <laughs> chasing sheep and people wanting to know this and that and answering emails and everything. But I, I put together quite a bit here and lots of live links. I mean, this is years of work to put all this information together. You can find it at preparingyou.com uh, and at hisholychurch.org. Both articles won't be there, but this particular one will be at Preparing You. And it, this one links back to other articles at hisholychurch.org. All this information is there, but you're supposed to be seeking the kingdom. You're not, you're not going to get it delivered to you on a platter. The only thing that came on a platter was the head of John the Baptist. You need to seek the kingdom. You need to work at this. You need to get serious about it. You need to start laying down the time, the energy, and your life if you're going to find the kingdom. Because that's how you pick up your life more abundant. So, Jesus was talking about, uh, he's not talking about uh, metaphorically going out and buying a sword, or metaphorically carrying a purse, or scrip, or shoes. He's saying that you need to get these things. You need to do these things. In Matthew ten nine, he says, Provide neither gold, nor silver, nor brass in your purses. When he was sending them out. The next verse he says, nor script. We can go into a big explanation as to what that means. For your journey, neither two coats, neither shoes, nor yet staves. For the workman is worthy of his meat. Now he's sending them out to follow the Holy Spirit. You know, I, I, you know, Paul traveled about 10,000 miles in his uh, ministry. I went 10,000 miles. <laughs> When we started the uh, burning, uh, uh, suddenly forgot the name of it. Uh, the 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 whirlwind tour. That was it. The whirlwind tour, and I traveled over ten thousand miles around the country. Almost died. Was almost killed. <laughs> Knew it was coming, uh, but survived it through the grace of God. And that was I don't know six eight years ago, and. Uh, and many people were seeing what I was saying, wanted to hear more, but they are not applying themselves. But I know we're planting the seeds in the soil of their mind. And they have to kind of die there. To be born again, and we've talked about where that came from, ancient writings in Cuneiform, <laughs> being born again, 
is to be set free. And one thing we want to set you free is your delusions. So I'm not really attacking your delusions. I'm pointing them out, though, that that you need to awaken. You know, like I wish I could just clap my hands and say, on the count of three, you will awaken from your delusion, and then you will see. But the reality is, is that God is the only one who can awaken you. But I'm giving you the information. Mark 6, 8. And commanded them that they, 12, the 12 he's talking to in this case, should take nothing for their journey, save a, uh, a staff only. No script, no bread, no money in their purse. So he's he's sending them out. He did the same thing in Luke 9, 3 and Luke 10, 4. But in Luke 10, 4, it was the 70. He says, carry neither purse nor script nor shoes and salute no man by the way. In other words, you're really, you're taking off and you you don't know where you're going and how you're going to get there. But you're just going to let the Spirit lead you. And I've told many stories about how I've done that. And how every one of you should learn how to do that. To go by the Spirit. But by the same token, we're not to tempt God. So Christ eventually says that you are supposed to take these things. And you are to uh, prepare for the journey. So anyway, you know, I, I mentioned that the fact that the, he said that they were to go out and, and uh, sent them two and two before his face into every city and place whither he himself would come. And why the two? Well, there's a thing called the zugat, which means a pair in, in Hebrew scripts. In about 170 B.C., during the time of the second temple in which the spiritual leadership of the Jews was in the hands of the succession of pairs of religious teachers, what they call Tana, uh, repeaters or teachers, while the uh, Amorium were interpreters. That's a different group. So there's the Tana and the Amorium. Um, but anyway, this is part of Jewish tradition and there's a reason why because it's supposed to be by two witnesses well you know who the two witnesses are in the bible it's when you finally understand the old and new testament are giving you the same message that moses and jesus were in agreement they weren't they didn't have separate messages and separate plans they were the same plan the law that was being done away was was the law set up by the false Sanhedrins and by the false kings who were imposing all kinds of rules and statutes. Christ was taking you back to what God originally intended. Back in the days of Enoch. Back in the days of Seth. He's taking you out of the ways of Cain. The ways of uh, electing men who exercise authority one over the other. This is where your salvation is. This is where being born again takes place. Now, like I said, there there was uh, there was upheaval and 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 blood being spilled. This was one of the things they were warning Christ: if you go to Jerusalem, that uh, you could die. Uh, Zechariah died, 
John the Baptist fled out to the desert with the Essenes and eventually took the the laver out to the Jordan River and was baptizing people into the kingdom of God out there because the the as soon as somebody is murdered in the Holy of Holies, it it isn't the Holy of Holies anymore. <laughs> it has to be rededicated. And of course it was going to be rededicated, but not a stone, dead stone temple, a living stone temple made from living stones. This is the temple that we need to reconstruct. All these these Christians who have this uh are have fallen prey to these false teachers think that oh we have to build a stone temple in Jerusalem or there won't be a second coming. No, you have to build a living stone temple right where you're at. <laughs> you don't have to go to Jerusalem. It's not a place. Church is not a place. The temple is not a place. It's not a dead stone building. It's it's a spiritual temple of living stones. Yes, you have to start the daily sacrifice again. But that daily sacrifice is your blood on altars of living stones. Where you're sacrificing like Christ sacrificed for you, but now you're sacrificing for Christ by loving your neighbor as yourself. That will be the miracle when you share your loaves and fishes with others. But you can't do that unless you sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. You can't do it effectively. You might, you know, I helped somebody today. I didn't find anybody yesterday. I haven't found anybody today, but I came across somebody with a flat tire and I helped them. I'm a Christian now. No. No, Christians are sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and helping people they don't even know and they don't even meet because they're an actual body with blood circulating, spiritual blood circulating from congregation to congregation through a network of people who are laying down their life daily. You do that, you will survive the Holocaust to come. And even if you don't physically survive spiritually, you will be on this other level that we call kingdom. The kingdom consciousness. The kingdom eschatology. So, uh, like I said, there was this upheaval. I mean, we have to realize that uh, uh, there were people who uh, who were trying to overthrow the government. There were people who were uh, trying to overthrow and drive out the Romans. There were all kinds of different people. And, and I mentioned here, and I've I've created a whole web page that tells you more about Menahem. I've mentioned him many times, uh, who was in a scene. And he was a member of the Sanhedrin. And, and I quote on this page the, the fact that, uh, uh, according to the, uh, you know, I, I don't know how to pronounce it, Chagagaga, which is a document, uh, that talks about the Sanhedrin. And, uh, it records in there. And, you know, I look at these, some of these ancient Jewish recordings in the Talmud and everything else, because of the fact that they mention things like, uh, you know, Simon the jar maker who was under house arrest. He was a really rich guy in Judea. He was a purveyor of oils. This is why he wasn't really Simon the leper. He was Simon the jar maker. And I've explained that. It has to do with language and going from the the Aramaic to the Greek. You, the words are almost identical, but he was actually a purveyor of oils, extremely rich, had two daughters, <laughs> Mary, Miriam, 
And uh, anyway, he uh, he was under house arrest because of his involvement with his so-called quote-unquote false messiah. Well, that's Jesus. This is evidence that these are real people. <laughs> this really happened. You know, but people don't want to see that. And it's not proof. You know, it's, it's, it could be an amazing coincidence. So it's not proof. The proof is, the proof you need is the spiritual awakening. That's why I'm saying this. I'm not trying to get you to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I'm breaking branches off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and, and breaking the, the, the bonds which are connecting you to that false security. I'm trying to set you free from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil so that you will go and eat of the tree of life. How do you eat of the tree of life? You have to repent and think differently. And then once you're thinking differently, you need to put that thinking into action because that's the way it works. You can't just believe in your mind. You have to have a belief that changes the way in which you relate to everything and everyone else. We'll be right back. So anyway, as we were talking about uh, Manahan the Essene, left the Sanhedrin with about 80 followers, and uh, they were dressed in, one translation says silk, another one says in royal garb, but uh, you go read our article on breeches, and you understand that these are often metaphors and that, not that they didn't wear royal garb or, or uh, silks or anything, but that the, all those things, the breeches, the people didn't make the underwear of the Levites. They weren't actually sewing. That wasn't important that they make the underwear of the Levites. It was, it, it's metaphors for giving them a covering because the Levites were the leaders of a government, but they were not the rulers of the people. They were supported not by taxes, but by free will offerings. But they performed many of the functions that you see today performed by government. Like welfare. Like uh, the same people that were providing the welfare for the needy of society through faith, hope, and charity in the Old Testament, which was the Levites. It was from that group that you establish your appeals courts to prevent injustices in local courts. So, in this government of Israel, which, you know, had sacrifice, but was it mindless burning up of sheep? It was the sacrifice of the people to care for the needy of society and pure religion. That was all done through free will offerings. They had no king, no ruler who could exercise authority, compel taxes. They didn't have that. It was a different kind of government. That's what the church is. It's that kind of government. But how in the world, I mean, if the apostles were taking the place of the people who sat in the seat of Moses, because Jesus says, I'm taking the kingdom away from the people who sat in the seat of Moses now, and I'm going to appoint it to this other group. And see, this is what Ben Shapiro needs to understand, and a lot of other Jews and a lot of other Christians that Christ took the kingdom away from one group and gave it to another. Does that mean that all Christians are doing what Christ said? No. Because all Christians are not attending to the weightier matters of law, judgment, mercy, and faith. A lot of Christians are engaged in covetous practices where they take away from their neighbor 
to provide benefits for themselves and for their families. Not a kingdom thing to do. Not the righteousness of Christ. So Manahem left and he went to serve the king. That's what it says. What king? Was that Christ? Was, you know, how was he serving the king? He's not serving Herod. <laughs> so, but he said that Herod was going to be king when the Messiah came. So he went to serve. So was he one of the three wise men? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Was he part of an entourage that also recognized Christ and helped hide Christ and, you know, till he got bigger and maybe he had a son. You know, I just realized this. Uh, I think his son's name was the same as the, the, the prophet who recognized Jesus is at, at, uh, at, uh, his, well, I guess you could call this his bar mitzvah. Uh, his, his christening at the temple, his dedication at the temple. I think that's the same name as Manahan's son. You know, I didn't put those two things together until just now. But again, we're not talking about knowledge giving you faith. We're talking about plugging into the Holy Spirit and guiding you. And I'm only shattering your delusion so you let go of that which binds you to the world and the ways of the world. And so that now you can turn around and start seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Which means you have to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and care more equally about other flocks, other groups of sheep, as you do about those three that you're hiding with under the bush in the desert. You need to, you need to approach the kingdom as a kingdom and not as a little group. So anyway, the institutions of men change over time, as I said, and the vast difference between the early church and the modern church is astounding. They were taking care of all social welfare. There was a lot of government welfare around, free bread of Rome, but they weren't eating of that table. Christ had a table of which you could eat, and it was a table set by free will offerings. How in the world are you setting that free will offering table down for 144,000 Christians or 144 million Christians worldwide if you're not going to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands? Stop. Stop. (laughs) When I clap my hands, stop. (laughs) Following after the ways of unrighteousness. So anyway, transgressor, he, the, the guy brings up the fact that, and like I said earlier, that the transgressor, uh, could mean, you know, anybody, uh, criminals, etc. But if we're talking about, um, this particular, uh, prophecy that we find in Isaiah 53, where it says that, uh, therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil. Well, a portion with the great. The Israel was divided into three pieces. There was where Philip was king, there was where Herod Antipas was king, and then there was the part that had Jerusalem. So this, that's fulfillment of this prophecy because that's what was taking place. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he hath poured out his soul 
unto death. The spoil with the strong. Who's the strong? You know what Rome means? The word Romeos means? It means strong <laughs> and whole. So it's it's with the help of Rome <laughs> that he is actually going to that's the sword that's going to actually be part of the fulfillment of the physical prophecy, which is only a metaphor of the spiritual prophecy. And he goes, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Okay, so what is that word, transgressors? It's in, in the Hebrew, it's pasha. And they actually had extra letters there, but it, it means transgressor, but it means someone who revolts, a rebel. Not just some common thief or murderer or, you know, somebody who stabs you in the dark or something. But it actually means a rebel. One of the things people, and I hear people say these kinds of things over and over again, that, uh, well, they had to take uh, Jesus to the Romans because they couldn't execute a man uh, because only the Romans could do that. No! They were going to execute that woman. They were going to stone her to death. They stoned Stephen to death. Why? How could they do that? And that night, kill Christ. Well, very simply, because Christ was king. And why was Rome there? To decide who was king. To to protect uh, the rightful king of Judea. This was actually what Pontius Pilate should have been doing. And he tried to do it. But he got himself caught, and I go through that whole explanation, and because he couldn't believe that they were running to kill Christ, and they were going to let Barabbas go, who was in a, who was one of these zealots, one of these Sicarii, and I've added that to the page. Who were the Sicarii? I have a whole section there on Pompey as well. Uh, Pompey, why he came in 66 uh, B.C., and then the Roman troops came in again in 6 B.C., Again, to settle the issue of who would be king. And so, how did they settle that? Well, Pontius Pilate hung it on the cross. Jesus Christ is king. He nailed it to the cross. And I have live links there to an article that explains that. I just saw that I, I've uh, got a few links here I need to uh, liven up. I was putting this together since about 4 o'clock this morning. But anyway, the Sicarii. Who are the Sicarii? That's... It's a Hebrew word that has to do with uh, men of knives, men of blades. Because uh, they, they carried these knives and they'd pull them out of their cloak and they would stab their enemy. And their enemy could be a Roman soldier, a tax collector, a Jewish woman who fraternized with Romans, you know, had relationships with Romans, even merchants who did business with the Romans. Josephus writes about them. And they they may have been the ones who ended up in Masada. And uh, died at Masada. I mean, that may have been one of these Sicari groups. And the same guys who ended up at Masada may have been the same guys. It appears that because of the time frame and the location, they may have been the same guys who invaded the uh, the Jedi. They actually killed the Jedi. Did you know that? Well, the Jedi is actually a village, an Essene village in uh, Israel that was attacked. That Essene village was probably totally Christian by that time. And because the Essenes, their their teachings were so similar to that of Christians. So these zealot Sicarii were actually attacking Christians as well. And so they were doomed. So they were 
they were destined to die at Masada because they they were the wrong kind of patriot. They needed to be, you know, Christians were the real patriots because they were the one following the real Messiah. And everybody who didn't follow Christ were breaking off from the true Christianity. And if Ben Shapiro would take a look at what Christ was actually saying, because I've heard Ben Shapiro saying, we need to do da-da-da-da-da, and what he's saying is exactly what Christ was saying (laughs) that we were doing, and what the Christians were actually doing, while the Pharisees were saying we had no king but Caesar. But they were all steeped in their rituals, instead of, they had unmoored the metaphor of the ritual from the meaning of the ritual. And they were eating of, they were eating unclean food because they were eating the free bread of Rome. I mean, I tell you about Augustus even made a law that if, if, uh, their free bread giveaways fell on a day that was a Pharisee holiday, the Pharisees could come on another day to get their free bread from Rome. If you're getting, if you're Orthodox, Pharisee zealot Jew today and you're taking free bread from the men who exercise authority one over the other you're not following Moses you're not doing what Moses said you got the clothes the royal garbs the 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 locks and everything but you're you're in apostasy you have need of repentance so then I have another section here on the Gordian knot trying to watch the time Alexander the Great, when he was, I don't know, about 18 years old, 17, 18 years old, there was this Gordian knot. It was a rope that was tied in this fancy knot. And if you could get it untied, if you could, you know, separate it, you could uh, separate the knot, untie the knot, you could take over the army. And I don't know what the original intent was of the guys who tied the dang knot, but... You know, the story is that Alexander the Great pulled out his sword and hacked the knot in two. And uh, and then became ruler of the army and went out and created his kingdom. Problem with that is that the rope wasn't any good anymore. Because he sliced it into a bunch of pieces by cutting the knot. <laughs> so, so, yeah, he separated the knot, but he made it useless. And this is what the problem with the Sakari is that they were going to use the sword, but they were going to destroy the very temple they were trying to save, the very system they were trying to save. This is because their consciousness was down there with the consciousness of the guys who go to gun-free zones and shoot up people. They want to destroy the enemy but they are actually in because they are catering to the spirit of destruction they're destroying themselves and that of course is the way of alexander the great which wasn't so great i mean he was actually a pretty good guy in some ways but i mean he was making all the wrong mistakes it's the same with solomon solomon broke all the rules in the book jesus was not breaking the rules he was not saying you couldn't have a sword he was actually saying if you don't have one you probably ought to go get one not just probably a good idea. Sell your coat if you have to get one, which was really a drastic way. Hopefully, they didn't all have to sell their coats. You didn't have to sell your coat. But if you had to, that's how important he was saying to get a sword. And and the guy who was arguing this says, and then they came back with two swords. They never left. <laughs> this, 
They're headed out to this is the Last Supper. They're headed out. There's a limited amount of time here. There's no shot sword shops open. <laughs> they already had those two swords on them. And I, for all I know, it was one guy had two swords, and then he says, "Here's two swords." It, there's no reason to believe that of all twelve apostles, or there may have been way more than the twelve apostles there. There's no reason to believe that. They, there weren't other swords, but there was somebody there who at least had two swords, or at least two guys who had a sword apiece. And then he says, it is enough, and I have a, I think I have a section on that, or at least I talk about it. What do they mean, it is enough? Well, actually, that it is enough is probably in relation, he was, this is, this is the verse where he just appoints the kingdom to the apostles, and tells them you're not to be like the governments of the Gentiles who exercise authority one over the other. That he is to be highest amongst you. The highest rank amongst you is not one of authority. Because he wasn't creating offices of authority. He was creating offices of service. This is the distinction between the governments of the world that we're not supposed to be a part of and the government of Christ. Is that he's creating offices of service. And so he is to be highest, is to be servant to all. So the best servant of servant of servant of servants is to be the head. But that doesn't give him legislative power. He can't tell you what to do. But he would be the guy, the go-to guy, if they were to come. Uh, which is great. <laughs> that guy. Because he's going to be contending with people in high places, whoever that guy is. There is no... One of the things that I talk about in this Gordian Knot section, which is going to be important later on, but remember... There's no central bank in the kingdom of God. There is no, there is no standing army in the kingdom of God. There is no legislative power in the leaders of the kingdom. They're not making laws. They're not exercising authority one over the other. This is a voluntary network that is bound together by love and charity alone. And the hope that you will be there for me, and I will be there for you. you. That's all you can hope for. There are no entitlements. There is no guarantee. There's no. If you've got guarantees, then your government is probably not God's government. The guarantees come from Christ, not from contracts that you make with other people. But you have to be sitting down in these tens, hundreds, and thousands in this network of charity in order to properly attend to the weightier matters of law, judgment, mercy, and faith. They're, they're, the spirit of force is upon you because you've gathered together in these socialist states all over the world. This is what was going on in the Roman Empire at the time. And those socialist states are based on the idea of forcing your neighbor to contribute to your welfare. These are the benefactors who are men who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority. They are the fathers of the earth. And they're the ones you pray to for your daily bread, then you're not a Christian. So where do you pray to for your daily bread? You have to, you have to become that body of Christ, that kingdom of God, that is operating by faith, hope, and charity. That's, that's what you're supposed to be seeking. But you have to do it. No one's gonna make it happen for you. But don't expect any loaves and fishes until you sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. So, I have a section here on no command to disarm. Yeah, there's no command to disarm by Christ. 
Uh, he says, did Jesus, uh, this is what I put down here, did Jesus prohibit the use of arms in self-defense as claimed by some? And I quote Tertullian, which is just one of these ancient fathers that they talk about of the church. And and a lot of these guys, Tertullian and uh, Origen and stuff like that, I mean, they had a lot of ideas that would be completely uh, heretical and were considered heretical even at the time. But they did write early and they were part of some sort of Christian network. But they're right about the time of Constantine, uh, some of them. Uh, but Tertullian in his apology says, When Christ disarmed Peter, he disarmed every soldier. What? What do you say? <laughs> Does that mean you can't have guns? You personally can't have a gun? You can't have a sword? You can't have a knife? I remember I had to... I. I when I flew different places to go do kingdom things, I had to leave my pocket knife at home because they would take it from me. <laughs> and I only use carry-on baggage because I always know they're going to lose my baggage. And so I had to open up a plastic container to get a USB connector out to to work at the hotel. And I couldn't get it open. I had to go down to the concierge and say, can you open this? I don't have a pocket knife, even a clippers to get this open. I was up there trying to tear it with my teeth. But anyway, so, but he, this that's not what he said. What did he say? Disarmed every soldier. Well, I just told you that according to those five prohibitions, if you're going to have a king, he's not supposed to have a standing professional military army. He's not, now I'm not against a professional army. I don't want to disband everybody's army. That's up to you guys. I'm just saying, in the kingdom of God, we don't have that. But doesn't mean that you don't, you're not armed. You know, who's in the militia? The U.S. militia, according to the codes, the U.S. militia is every able-bodied man from the ages of 17 to 45. Well, that's about what it is in the kingdom of God. But are we supposed to wage war against legitimate governments and is the united states government a legitimate government is it a legitimate government if they force vaccinations if they force you to send your kids to public school is that a legitimate government well maybe maybe it's legitimate for you because you've already sold your rights for benefits because you ate at the table of caesar you eat at my table you obey my rules why aren't you eating at the table of christ why aren't you setting the table if you can't if there isn't anything there for you to eat you should at least be setting the table for somebody else because that's the key to the kingdom. You have to care about others as much as you care about yourself. Nobody there to support you. Your kids don't support you. They're, your kids are all a bunch of bums or most of them or whatever. They don't support you so you have to go collect social security or you starve to death. Do I want to see you starve to death? No. But if you're on social security, you need to be contributing something to build the kingdom, time, energy, you know, whatever. Don't don't mail me a quarter for forty cents, please. And besides, I don't want everybody sending me money. I mean, you certainly can. I'm not saying I can't tell you who not to give to or who to give to, but you need to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, and and do it through the body. I don't want transfusions. Or do it through the body. Do, do Yeah, they don't do everything that they're supposed to be doing. But you minister to your ministers and maybe they will learn to do what they're supposed to be doing. Uh, in the meantime, you you can give to whoever you want. But anyway, 
the militia in the kingdom is every, this is, in Israel, who was the militia? They were already gathered in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. Why? To take care of the weightier matters of law, judgment, mercy, and faith. Well, the law, well, courts. You know, because that was how Jethro suggested it, but Jethro just got it from before. It's been around for ancient times that they organized in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. And there's evidence that they were already doing that. But he's saying, now do this for the courts as well. What is the deal with the tens, hundreds, and thousands and intending to the weightier matters of law, which includes judgment, that would be the courts, mercy, that would be including welfare, mercy, and faith. Faith, trusting in the ways of God. So that when Israel was attacked, they already had their militia ready to go tens, hundreds, and thousands. Because the you would come to the defense of your neighbor. They were all armed. And Christians were all armed. But they weren't going to foment revolution. A violent revolution and take their, their, their kingdom by force. They were going to let God do that battle and they were willing. You're going to die in a military battle. They, they did, they divided Rome. They destroyed Rome by letting Rome destroy them. This is how it works. It's, it's the reverse of what you're being taught. And this is what you have to do is when you seek it in the kingdom of God. But you, you should be, well, I can't tell you what you should be. You can be armed. There's absolutely nothing against it. We'll talk more about this in the afternoon show. But until then, I can say peace on your house and may God be with you. So join us on the network. Learn what it means to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. Until then, peace. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.